Hey, good morning, everybody. So it's starting to look like Christmas around here. Anybody done any decorating at home? Put the lights up outside? Some of you. Some of you still have to do that? Still have to do it? A few more. All right. We know who those who really believe in Christmas are, right? Those really committed to Christmas. That was me yesterday. I was outside with a staple gun and LED lights, put it, stapling those things to the house. And um, I have those LED lights that love to just get all twisted up, right? But when you're working with LEDs and you have OCD, it's just, it's a very, it's a very tricky thing. A lot of frustration, a lot of tears. I was out there by myself, so I don't know. Just trying to get every light straight. They are a twisted mess, but I'm committed to Christmas nonetheless. And, and we really are, as a church around here, really committed to um, Christmas, December 25th. But there is this beautiful thing called Advent. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And we progress and we move towards Christmas. And so this year we're trying to be really intentional about this season of Advent. If you haven't picked one up already, um, be sure to grab one of these on your way out. Um, there's enough really for every, close to every person who would make use of it. Um, and these are, these are Advent guides. Um, they go along with our sermon series, Longing for Jesus, but they also have weekly devotionals with supplemental reading, help you through the whole week. Um, there's also family devotionals on a weekly basis in here. Um, Pastor Chris and our children's ministry team have really been building these into what we call field guides, sending your kids home each week with, with these field guides, really for devotionals at home. And, um, and so uh, we just want to give you every resource possible to make that a, make that a, um, a practice in your home. And so uh, we want to resource you as individuals and couples and families to, to make use of that. Just inside, I'd invite you in the coming days here today and the coming days, uh, make use of one of the first pages, which is uh, really ideas of how to optimize this Advent season missionally, meaning how do we love our community at this time? There are some ideas, maybe as an individual, as a family, as a life group, we've put ideas in there for us to have impact in the community as well. So for us, Advent is all of those things. And, and this year, our theme is really um, along the lines of this one particular word called longing. There's something going on over there. All right. There's this word called longing. Maybe call it yearning, call it angst. But every human being has it, right? This, this longing in our hearts, everybody has it to some degree about some sorts of things. So when we turn on news and we see the tragedies happening in Paris, right, we see terrorism taking place in places like Paris and New York and ongoing in the Middle East, these tensions, we look at those and we have this right and good longing for peace. As we watch those events unfold, we say, this is not how it is supposed to be and we long for these wrongs to be righted, do we not? The same can be said about illness. There is longing for healing, isn't there? Right? Make this bad thing that is debilitating or even terminal go away, Lord. It's not right. It's not as it's supposed to be. And so there is this longing for illness either of our own or, or those we know and we love. Lord, we long for this wrong to be righted. 
There are other kinds of, of, of longings in our hearts that we have. It's almost two years ago now, two Christmases ago, uh, my parents were out for a visit, uh, and then they returned home to Calgary just after Christmas, and I got a phone call from my dad saying, I, I, I'm, I'm leaving your mom. And, uh, and, and when that took place, you know, um, he'd been planning it for a while, but didn't want to ruin Christmas, and so kind of followed it up. And... Um, and it, I, I guess what I discovered at that time was it doesn't matter if you're three, if you're 13, or you're 30. When that kind of thing happens, there's this longing in your heart that says, ah, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Family doesn't exist as it once did and should be. This sense of loss and this sense of longing invades the space. Um, when I was 16, uh, my parents moved to, to Calgary, and I was just about to head into grade 12, and I was like, there's no way I'm moving to a different city on my grad year, and like, this is supposed to be the, kind of the culmination of something. I don't want to start over, so I dug in my heels, and they relented, and I stayed here. Well, they went there, and I finished my grade 12 year, but as they moved, right, the, the family home that I spent a lot of years growing up in was sold, and I lived other places, and and many of you, um, you know, in your late teens, in your 20s, you, you might have this sense of feeling that I came to discover at that stage of life and that, um, that this home, this concept of home that you once had doesn't exist anymore. And there's this odd kind of empty longing for something that you can't even get back even if you wanted to. One of my favorite movies of all time is called Garden State. It really is about millennials. If you want to know how millennials think, watch Garden State. It's full of angst. <laughs> it's full of 20-somethings just mulling around and <laughs> trying to figure out life. It's perfect. But he touches on this, the protagonist in the movie, and he says, you know that point in your life when you realize the house you grew up in isn't really your home anymore? All of a sudden, even though you have some place where you put your stuff, that idea of home is gone. It's like you feel homesick for a place that doesn't even exist anymore. And I think that's a beautiful summary for longing in general of the human heart. There is this angst, there is this longing, and we're, we're, we're looking around to grapple for home, and we can't quite grasp it, but something isn't as it should be, and there is this sense of loss, and there is this sense of longing, and we want to know where to place it and what to do with it. I mean, that really is the human condition. Things aren't as they ought to be. We are fallen, we are sinful people, and we desperately need rescue. And so this Advent, we're addressing our longings. That's where we're going in the next number of weeks. This longing to be known, and longing to be loved, and longing to be accepted, longing for evil to cease, and ultimately, a longing for Jesus, the one who accomplishes all of those things. And that's why his coming is so significant. I mean, we just sang about it, and I will rise when you call my name, no more sorrow, no more pain. A longing for that day, a longing for that to happen. And so let's dive right into this whole issue of longing. It, we, we see it throughout the scriptures, and so let's get started. Advent itself means coming. We heard that from the reading. And the Old Testament is chock full of imagery and prophecy about the coming of a Messiah. It really means anointed one. 
The New Testament in, in Greek tends to use a different word for anointed. It's Christ, the anointed one. So in the Old Testament, there's a longing for the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. And in the New Testament, we see the arrival of that one. And so what we're doing this morning is we're starting our Advent series right at the first instance we see a sign of the coming Savior. The first instance we see a need, and the first instance we see a sign of his coming. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 3, because I really think to start Advent off right and most fully, we need to start in all places in Genesis chapter 3. It's the first book in the Bible. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn there? Chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, um, we love giving Bibles away. You can pick one up at the Welcome Center, and then when you come here, you can kind of follow along and find these places in that Bible. We'd love to gift that to you. It'll also be on the screen. Let me just read a couple verses out of Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. Here's what they say. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, that is deceived the man and the woman, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Firstly, what we're going to look at this morning is that Advent began in Eden, not in Bethlehem. We typically think of Advent story beginning in a stable, but it actually began in a garden. Our first glimpse in the Bible of Advent is in Eden. In other words, it was already in God's mind that he would send his son Jesus to earth to be born in Bethlehem and to die to save us from our sins. God was working throughout all of history to prepare for the first Christmas. So we're going to look at three uh, things going on in this little passage. We're going to look at this serpent, we're going to look at the offspring, and we're going to look at this whole bruised head and heel thing. So firstly, this serpent. Who's the serpent? It's cursed and it has to kind of go along and kind of getting dust in its face. Right? We, we look at it as a reptile, we look, we look at it as this thing that, that has to do that, but, but if we look at other passages of Scripture that come later, they're pointing back and they're defining exactly what this serpent is. We see it in Hebrews 2 and in Romans chapter 16. We, all, we also see it, I think, really clearly in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where it says that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so Revelation, John in Revelation is helping us see, he's looking all the way back from the last book in the Bible to the very first and saying, it was Satan, that serpent in the garden. The word devil means slanderer. The word Satan means accuser. And he's the deceiver of the whole world. That's how he's defining this ancient serpent. So that's that. Secondly, though, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. So there's this, this offspring thing going on. Also, another word for it is seed or descendants. All of them I mean that you can have direct descendants, but you can have descendants way down the line, right? You can have offspring, but you can kind of have offspring all, way down the line. And all of that's going on. The immediate seed is Abel, and then Seth of Adam and Eve, the first people. The collective seed is the offspring of the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 
And after Genesis, though, we don't hear again of the promised seed until God promises David a seed in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he says, I will raise up your offspring after you. goes on to say, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this promised seed comes up again for David, and it's talking about something going on that is much like any much different than any other kingdom. All right? We have prime ministers that have three, four-year terms. The, the states have four-year terms, even monarchies. They, never, they don't seem to last forever, but God's speaking of a seed that will come with a kingdom that will last forever, entirely different. The, the, pro, the prophet Isaiah picks up on this where he says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's an offspring to come that is so important, so significant, and is long awaited for. Ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of this seed coming into the world through the seed of the woman. This is the distinction between people. They are of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. So the rest, the rest from, from, we're talking, the rest of redemptive history is the warring between these two seeds. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is this, if Genesis 3.15 is the skeletal framework, the rest of Scripture is the fleshing out of this one verse. A warring between the offspring of the woman and the wa- offspring of of the serpent. Starting to sound really Star Wars-esque there. Good versus evil, right? It's just sort of it's like, who's going to win? Maybe evil, maybe, right? Like we don't quite know. And yet there's a follow-up. There's a tag. There's a finality to verse 15. And here's what it says. We start to see some definition that's encouraging and hopeful. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He is the woman's offspring And your is the serpent himself. He, the offspring, shall bruise your, the serpent's, head. Since only the head of the serpent is represented as crushed, we expect an individual to deliver the fatal blow and to be struck on his heel. So let me unpack this a little bit. This is, it's going to get real encouraging real quick, but here's what's going on. Genesis 3 is the first instance of judgment we see in the Bible, and a curse is given first to the serpent, then to Eve, and then to Adam. In the Bible, to curse is really the opposite of to bless. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God creating and blessing and it's good. In Genesis chapter 3, we now see that sin has entered the picture and now there's cursing. When when the Bible talks about cursing, there's no spells being cast. When the Bible talks about cursing, it means to invoke God's judgment on someone typically for a specific offense, which is precisely the case here. First he goes to the serpent for his specific crafty offense. Then he goes to the woman and the man. So Irenaeus and other early Christian church fathers in the second century um, picked up on this and regarded verse 15 in Genesis chapter 3 as the proto-evangelium. Isn't that exciting? Um, really what that is, is it's the first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, but it's also known as the first gospel. From the first moment, here's what this means. From the first moment of our need for rescue, Genesis chapter 3, God's promise was there. 
Before he addressed Adam and Eve, he hadn't even gotten there yet. God turned to the serpent and announced that sin would not have the final say and that the schemes of the enemy would not prevail. There is light in this darkness. In the midst of judgment, the text of the Proto-Evangelium comes into view. God will remove the challenge, but at a cost. The one who will come, who will remove the challenge, will get bruised at the heel, though. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions about Jesus. He was crushed, also bruised, is another word there, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Colossians 2.15 picks up on the same thing. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities of darkness and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When Jesus died for our sins, he was bruised. But Satan was disarmed and defeated. And so I want you to hear something going on here that's really important. Any NFL fans here today? I feel bad even saying this on Grey Cup Sunday, but are there any NFL fans here? All right, a few of you. You will probably be familiar with something that happened, I don't know, a year, maybe two. Give me some indicators, people, of a, of a massive lawsuit um, where a number of players, many, 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 many players, um, won a lawsuit against the NFL regarding concussions. And they received $765 million dollars uh, because of these concussions. Um, I have yet to see a lawsuit with any kinds of numbers on it regarding foot injuries. Anybody seen one? Massive scale lawsuit about foot injuries in the NFL. No. Guys roll their ankles. Guys get hurt their, right, hurt their legs, hurt their feet. It happens. Those are injuries that happen in football. But, but the head. You get injured in the brain. And it is really, really Costly. Can I show you something encouraging about Genesis 3.15? There is one who is to come who will crush the head of Satan. And as he does so, he'll get hurt himself, but he's only going to get bruised on the heel. I mean, we're talking about very different things. Satan bruised Jesus' heel on the cross. But the decisive blow was the bruising, the crushing of Satan by Jesus on the cross by the perfect offspring, Jesus, of this woman. Jesus triumphed over evil on the cross. That was why we needed him to come. And when he comes, he will ultimately triumph. Romans 16.20 refers back to Satan, this crafty servant, and says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's so beautiful about Genesis chapter 3 is that in the very first instance of judgment in the scriptures, there is already a shadow of the gospel. Promise is coming. 3.15 in Genesis provides the very first biblical glimpse of God's plan of redemption and it ultimately focuses on Christ's victory over Satan, crushing his head. God loves us, this means, so much that as the first ever judgment for sin was delivered, and rightfully so, justly so, but when that first ever judgment for sin was delivered, hope, promise, and the sending of his son Jesus was already in motion. 
At the first moment of humanity's need of redemption, promise and hope was there. And that remains the case for you today. In your need, Jesus is there. The very first instance in creation where there was a need, the gospel was there in your moment of need. Do you have a need? Do you have a longing that has not been filled? Are you needing Jesus? Well, he's there. The first instance that you would call, it's there. And it always has been from the very beginning. Let's pick up the second point. The gift Jesus gives is far greater than what we lost in Adam. Look at Romans 5, starting at verse 14. The gift Jesus gives is far greater than what we lost in Adam. Here's the great Christmas gift. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Sin just plagued everyone. Who was it? But Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Note that word. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one. One man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What this is ultimately saying is that Adam was a type of the one to come. No one else in the Old Testament is referred to this way. But Paul, when he writes Romans, is looking back at Adam and saying he's a type. Really, what that means is he's a counterpart of Christ, and there's two covenantal heads in the whole world, in all of humanity. There are two covenantal heads. I shouldn't go like this, that's four. (laughs) There are two covenantal heads. There's Jesus, who's the last Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it. And then there's Adam, first Adam. Adam was a type of Christ in that his act would have wide-ranging consequences for the whole world, just as Jesus' life and death would have wide consequences for the world. These are the covenantal heads of the human race because everyone on the planet is either in Adam or in Jesus. So here's the thing. All are in Adam by birth and those in Jesus are by Jesus, the second Adam in new birth. Everyone inherits a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. That happened. We see that happen in the garden. We see the curse take place. Everyone inherits a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. That is the consequence. And we are incapable of getting ourselves out of the horrible predicament of sin and alienation from paradise where we have these longings to be satisfied, for wrongs to be righted and all of it. But we are alienated from that because of the horrible predicament of sin. And therefore, every descendant of Adam is not only guilty of sin, but actually loves to sin and cannot do otherwise, having inherited Adam's fallen nature. The word Adam itself means mankind, and the human race has a corporate solidarity with Adam. So biblical thinking on this is that we were Adam, Adam is mankind, and as Adam, we sinned. Everyone, there's these two covenantal heads, everyone by default is in Adam. And we might ask the question, that's unfair, is that unfair? Why do we inherit that? Why do we inherit that? Well, there's much to say about that, but for the sake of time, I'm simply going to say that if we think it's unfair to have Adam's guilt belong to us, then logically, we should also conclude that it's unfair for Christ's righteousness to belong to us also. That's unfair. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited. 
If it's unfair that we inherit what Adam gave, it's also unfair that we inherit what Christ gives. But as you can see, the gift from Jesus far outweighs what we lost from Adam. The first Adam sinned and God counted us guilty along with him. The second Adam obeyed perfectly and all who believe in him are counted righteous along with him. Meaning God in sheer grace designed it so that a descendant of the woman will ultimately overcome Satan and crush him. And to do so would incur bruising and crushing himself, though not finally and not definitively. But he would make a way for descendants of Adam to receive life and victory in Jesus. One sin brought widespread death, but Jesus' death brought widespread forgiveness of sins. John Calvin put it this way, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. There is a first Adam, and we inherit his sin. We don't just inherit it. We love to sin. And yet Jesus comes along and is much more powerful to save and to break that curse and to free us from the bondage of sin than Adam ever was to destroy. The sin of one is canceled by the righteousness of the other. The curse of one is overcome by the grace of the other. The one causes death. The other swallows up death in life. In every way, Christ surpasses Adam. And we're left simply to put our faith in Jesus rather than in ourselves. So let's talk about longings, though, again for a minute. Let's talk about longings in our hearts. We either then inherit, this is our starting place, we inherit misplaced longings like from Adam, like Adam. So Adam got to walk with God, be with God, um, had this beautiful sort of relationship with God and God said, there's this one tree, don't eat from it. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't want that. You shouldn't have that. But it looked pleasant. And Adam, rather than having faith in God, loving God, submitting to God, said, no, I want to choose this beautiful looking thing over here for myself. And he took and he ate. There was rebellion. He had longings that weren't to bring Jesus glory. They weren't to glorify God. He had these longings for self-glorification. He didn't want to build God's kingdom wanted to build his own kingdom. And every one of us in the line of Adam does the same thing. There is this sense where we want to, we have these misplaced longings that don't glorify God and aren't ultimately for our good. But there are these ultimate longings that are found in Jesus, the better Adam, where there are longings for things to be righted when we look around, longing for justice, longing for peace, longing for true and deep love and community and unity and all of these sorts of things. And those ultimately only find their fulfillment in Jesus. The seed of the serpent refers to natural humanity who he has led into rebellion against God. And now humanity is divided into two communities, those in Adam and those in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And I think we live in that tension. For some of us, it's an issue of belief or unbelief. Some of, many of us believe in Jesus, but I wonder, are our daily affections the kinds of ones that further God's kingdom? Are they the ones that further our own? Are they ones that bring glory to God or do they bring their glory to our own? Do they build his kingdom or do they build our own? We can live in that. We want to choose to live in light of the second Adam, not the first. For some of us, we've never given our lives to Jesus and we are just going down the track of the first Adam, which leads to sin and destruction, judgment and eternal wrath. 
And yet Jesus came to bring far more glory and good than the wrongs that have ever happened. It's a beautiful thing that we can know God and have our longings satisfied. I want to end with a story here. It's regarding this idea of longings for the, first, uh, for the things of God, but not being able to help ourselves, not being able to get ourselves out of them. That was the case with Mel Trotter, a man in 19th century Chicago. He was an alcoholic. He left his wife and baby for weeks at a time and came home one day to find his son had died in his wife's arms. He blamed himself, saying, I'm a murderer. I'm anything but a man. I can't stand it and I won't stand it. I'll end my life standing over his son's coffin. He swore he'd never drink again. Two hours later, he was staggering drunk. Resolved to kill himself, he sold his shoes for some alcohol and wandered along the frozen streets of Chicago, barefoot and drunk. His progress somehow providentially brought him past the door of the Pacific Garden Mission where after hearing the testimony of the mission's director that night, he was converted. He was told that God loved him and would change him. And that's what Jesus did. See, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Asked later how he knew he was saved, he replied, I was there when it happened. January 19th, 1897, 10 minutes past 9, Central Time, Pacific Garden Mission, Chicago, Illinois, USA. The director asked Mel to be his assistant at the mission. And three years later, Mel was asked to become the director of a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, and it became the largest in the country. They bought the burlesque house next door in order to provide more space for their growing ministry. Another redemptive story. Trotter, during that time, led a man named Herb Silloway to Christ, and Silloway then got drunk six times in four weeks and tried to drown himself. Trotter found him in a jail in wet clothes and said nothing. Just stood in front of him and wept. Silloway, seeing what was going on, seeing this act of love by this man in front of him, said, My God, man. You must really love me. And Trotter replied, Yes, Herb, I love you like I love my own soul. And Silloway eventually became Trotter's assistant. And on and on it went. Mel helped found rescue missions all over the U.S. and became a minister. Jesus has the power to change our affections and transform our lives. When we try to satisfy our longings with addictions that only lead us to demise, Jesus is willing and able to step into the midst of the fray, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the hopelessness, with an answer and a cure and a rescue that truly does satisfy and bring us out of the depths of our despair. I really think one of my favorite hymns sums it up well in the song, the song Here is Love, where it says, Grace and love like mighty rivers pour incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. You ever seen a mighty rushing river? No matter how many sins you have, his grace is a mighty river so strong it will wash away all your sins. 
No matter how big your sins are, you are not beyond the grace of Jesus. The gift is greater than what we lost. The grace of God offered to Mel Trotter, he offers to you. Mel is no special case. He didn't earn God's favor by the way he lived. We know that, but he experienced justification and life by sheer grace. However rampant sin is, grace is more rampant. Jesus, the second Adam, came to right all the wrongs came to satisfy every longing. Jesus didn't come to simply give an al alcoholic sobriety, though he's done that. Jesus came to bring complete transformation to a broken life after broken life after broken life, healing it, satisfying the longings deeply, richly, here and eternally. Every one of us is in Adam, but some, by God's grace, are also in Christ. Can you look to the cross and know that you're in Jesus? You become in him by faith, by believing in what he's done and by committing yourself to him. Saying, I've tried every other thing. All right, I'll put my trust in Jesus and see that he satisfies my longings. I invite you, I encourage you to do that. Have you counted on his grace? Are you relying on the last Adam or the first? Are you relying on your own ability to get yourself out of the predicament of sin and death and decay? Or are you relying on the sinless, gracious Son of God, Jesus Christ? Central Advent began in Eden when sin entered the garden. And as sinful human hearts longed to be made right, God's rescue mission was already in motion. He loves us that much. I'm going to invite our uh, prayer uh, team members to just get in different spots in the sanctuary. We, we love to make this a part of our response towards the front, towards the back, and up in the balcony. We just want to have people available to pray with you. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus this morning, perhaps you've followed every other path. If there's some sort of urge, some sort of longing there this morning, I just encourage you, come and receive prayer and, uh, and give your life over to Jesus this morning. If there's any sort of longing, maybe there's been some misplaced longings in your life, if you would just like prayer that God become that overwhelming sense of longing in your heart, if there are other things going on that cause angst, maybe we've touched on some of it this morning, just encourage you, there are people who love to pray and would love to pray for you. It's a part of our response of worship, so invite you to do that. Let's stand together, and uh, we're just going to spend some time in response in worship and prayer and song, so let's pray. God, thank you so much. That in our first moment of need that we see in the word, that we see in creation, at that first moment of need, Lord, your plan for redemption was already in motion and you were beginning to reveal it right then and there. Lord, even before you placed judgment on Adam and Eve, humanity for their willful sin, even before you placed that judgment on them, you were already bringing hope in the darkness. Light was already beginning to flicker and shine. God, I so thank you for your grace in that. And we just see it building and growing and moving, culminating, Lord, in the incarnation that you came. That ultimately, Lord, you sealed um, beyond a shadow of a doubt the fact that our longings will be um, filled, fulfilled because he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so we could be made right again. And Lord, it all points back again in the end to a garden where everything will be made right. So Lord, we thank you for your coming.
We thank you for the longings you place in our hearts. Lord, may they find their fulfillment and hope ultimately in you, Jesus. I pray it all in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen.